Welcome to the MacPFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently to leading and managing your team to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work and finally to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. In this episode, Dr. Jack Hirsch enlightens us on his academic career. We learn about his journey to McMaster University, the history of thrombosis treatments, and some useful strategies for choosing effective collaborators. We hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone. Um, I am Teresa Chan and I am here today with someone who has been around at McMaster since I think close to the very beginning, um, if not actually the beginning. Uh, I'm here with Dr. Jack Hirsch. Uh, he probably doesn't need too much introduction, but um, he's here with me to start the inaugural kind of like sub-series that we're going to put together for Mac PFD Spark, which will be um, looking at back at some of the lessons learned through a career in science or education or administration or leadership. And uh, I'm really excited to have you here as a podcast uh, guest. Jack. My pleasure. All right. So for those um, who might be newer to the audience, maybe some of our learners might sometimes listen to our podcasts and some people might not know um, you by your reputation uh, because they might be in a different discipline or they're uh, new to the scene. Uh, but could you give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself? Sure, sure. So I came to McMaster at the end of 1969. I graduated at the University of Melbourne in Australia. I decided after my second or third year of internal medicine <clears throat> that I wanted to do research. Mm. And I wasn't sure how to go about that, but I got some help and as a result I spent about four years travelling the world, in, uh, went to the States, United States, uh, England, then Canada, uh, France, and then went back, came back to Australia to set up a thrombosis program mm. in Australia. Okay. That was in 1967. Hmm. And I was successful yet um, unhappy because I knew there was more to research than the way I was doing it. Okay. Tell, tell me about um, why that was that you felt that way. Well, because the research I was doing was opportunistic. Okay. So I'd look around to see what I could do mm-hmm. um, and with, rather than looking for a important clinical problem that needed solving. Okay. So, in all research, the important thing is to ask the right, well, firstly, to select a problem, mm-hmm. ask the right question, mm-hmm. and then go about trying to solve it. Mm-hmm. And you can't solve all problems that you feel should be solved mm-hmm. because the conditions have to be right mm-hmm. in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, cut a long story short, I went on a recruitment visit to McMaster in 1969. Mm-hmm. And I presented my, uh, my research there, and uh, it was well received by everyone except one person called David Sackett. 
another uh, very well-known name. Another well, very well-known yeah. name. So David was very uh, David was uh, very polite, but I was I presented some material on dissolving clots in lungs with with streptokinase. Streptokinase being one of the well, actually the first so-called clot buster. Mm-hmm. And uh, I showed before and after pictures. They were angiograms. And there were lots of oohs and ahs in the audience as the clots disappeared. Um, it wasn't a randomized study. Mm-hmm. I compared it to uh, results in patients treated with heparin, but they were not randomized. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at the end of the talk, uh, I sat down with David and he said, uh, well, it's interesting, Jack, but uh, uh, how do you know that dissolving the clots makes any difference? Mm. And I said, well, of course it makes a difference. It has to make a difference. He said, well, how many people treated with heparin died? Mm. And that got me thinking. Mm-hmm. Got me thinking about the difference between a surrogate outcome and a cl- clinically important outcome. And on the way back, dry, uh, flying back, I sort of thought, Sackett's the missing link in my research. I need to collaborate with someone like him. Mm-hmm. And he was the main draw card of me. Um, after two years, um, um, up, um, moving to Canada with my family, mm-hmm. after finally settling down, we'd been travelling for about four years, and, mm-hmm. and um, I came to master. And I set out to develop a thrombosis program, which turned out to be very successful, but it was successful for a, a variety of reasons, but one of the very important ones was that there were three of us. There was me, I was the content expert. Mm-hmm. I was the person who saw the patients mm-hmm. and came up with the questions that need answering. Because it's very hard in clinical research to ask the right question mm-hmm. unless you're seeing patients, because you get the right question and the patients you see. Yeah, they pop up in front of you, right? They pop up in front of you. You say, um, you have a patient and you say, gee, I'm not sure how to treat this patient or I'm treating this patient in the standard manner, but I'm not sure whether it works. Mm-hmm. Perhaps I should do a study to see if it, and design a study to see if this treatment works or whether it does more harm than good or whether there are other treatments. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other two members were Dave Sackett, who, course helped lots and lots of people mm-hmm. and a mathematician who later on became a biostatistician called Michael Gent and Michael was an excellent statistician mm-hmm. and so one of the first questions we asked was how should we treat patients with venous thrombosis once they're discharged from hospital mm. we would treat them with heparin when they were in hospital but we were uncertain what to do when they were discharged. Mm. A standard approach, but not everyone used it, was to use warfarin after a discharge from hospital. So we decided we'd do a randomized study. Uh, the decision was to compare, a lot of people use no treatment. Mm. So we're gonna c- compare warfarin with no treatment. And we approached um, the head of medicine at Shadok Hospital. Shadok was then an active hospital. Mm-hmm. His name was Graham Marston and asked whether he'd cooperate with us. 
because we needed patience. Mm -hmm. And he said, I would touch warfarin. He said, my patients bleed and it's impossible to monitor. Mm. I use the same dose and I get a prothrombin. At that stage, the INR hadn't been developed. Mm -hmm. I get a prothrombin time ratio of two one day and then on the same dose, two weeks later, the prothrombin ratio is four. Mm -hmm. he, he said, I, I, I wouldn't touch it. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't use him. But we decided, the, the we being Russell Hull and myself, Russell was a research fellow then, um, to compare warfarin with low-dose heparin. Okay. We just started to introduce low-dose and fractionate heparin mm -hmm. for the prevention of venous thrombosis. So okay. we said, okay, we compare low-dose heparin, patients self-injecting subcutaneous heparin twice daily with warfarin. Mm -hmm. We did that study and uh, we found that low-dose hep was inadequate. Mm. Uh, there was a high rate of recurrence. Mm -hmm. Patients didn't bleed very much. Mm -hmm. Much less recurrence with warfarin, but there was a lot of bleeding. Mm -hmm. In fact, if we combine minor and major bleeding, it was about 20%. Mm -hmm. So we said, well, what we should do is increase the dose of heparin. And so we gave an intermediate adjusted dose of heparin. Mm -hmm. And that worked very well. Uh, uh, we got the same rate of recurrence, about 2%, mm -hmm. as we got with warfarin in the other study. And we again got about 2% recurrence with warfarin, but much more bleeding than adjusted dose heparin. I presented this to the haematologists in Hamilton, and they sort of, they said, well, we don't get this, that sort of bleeding. But in fact, they haven't been following their patients. And then, I went to a meeting in London and presented that uh, at this meeting. And at the meeting, there was a pioneer in warfarin monitoring, uh, Dr. Leon Pollock from Manchester. And uh, during my talk, he, he was a nice person. We became friends later, but quite aggressive. Uh, you know, he was muttering rubbish, uh, nonsense. Uh, he was sitting in the front row. It was very disconcerting. And I finished my talk, mm -hmm. and after that he said, you guys in Canada don't know how to monitor warfarin. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous, we don't get that sort of pleading. So we, we, I thought about it, and I said, well, perhaps we could meet and discuss it, because there must be a reason for this, yeah. if indeed you don't get as much pleading. Mm -hmm. Well, to cut a long story short, during the discussion, mm -hmm. uh, we found that we both used the same targeted prothrombin time ratio, which was 2.0 to 3.0, and so it couldn't be the, that we monitored our patients with a different ratio. But then it struck me that perhaps I used a different reagent than him. In fact, we did. So he was using a homemade reagent made from human brain, which we all used to use. But in, in about the year before I came, Canadian hospitals began to buy their reagents from vendors, commercial vendors, mm -hmm. and, they were, and there were about six or seven different types. Okay. And uh, we were using um, Simplastin, which was a commonly used thromboplastin. Anyhow, when, uh, so I said, well, what, I know you use your standard, because he developed the standard. Uh, we use Simplastin. He said, I, I don't know anything about Simplastin. I said, well, what's the average dose of warfarin that you use? to get a prothrombin time ratio of two to three. 
he said, I know that because I've been chelating all that and it's, it's about four milligrams. Well, I knew what we used in our studies and the average dose was 5.1 milligrams. So the penny dropped for me and I said, well, it's, it's because our reagent is not as sensitive as your reagent. So we need a bigger dose of warfarin to get a ratio of two to three than with yours. But I said, how do you know yours is effective? We know ours is effective. He said, oh, I'm sure it's effective. He's never done a clinical trial. He was, I'm, I, I know that it's effective. I said, well, but you've got no evidence. He said, I don't need evidence. I know it's effective. I said, well, <laughs> I said, well what about if you give me some of your material? And I, I smuggle it back to Canada and we do a randomized trial. Uh, in patients with venous thrombosis after a discharge from hospital and randomize them to either a prothrombotime ratio of two to three using your reagent mm -hmm. or our reagent, mm -hmm. which we did. Okay. And there, uh, the results were that both were equally effective, mm -hmm. again, recurrence rate of less than 2% in both okay. groups. But Bleeding rate with his reagent was about 2% and ours was 18%. Wow, so big difference. Big difference. So yeah. little dose made a big difference. Mm -hmm. And uh, we know that's the case now. Mm -hmm. We did a crossover study. We looked at the, we took the plasma of patients who were randomized to receive to, to be monitored with the Polish reagent, which is a human brain thromboplastin and we did a, and vice versa. So when we uh, looked at the prothrombotime ratio using our reagent, it was 1.2. Mm. And when we looked at the prothrombotime ratio of, our pa of the patients randomized into the simplastin, it was 4.5. Oh. So there's this huge difference. Okay. So we really, we realized we had a problem and. Uh, we published this and, uh, and then set about trying to convince the world that this lower intensity warfarin was more effective. Mm -hmm. It took a while, it took about, before it was completely accepted by all, probably 10 years. Yeah. And that's what it takes, that's mm -hmm. what it takes. Now about the same time, scientists of the World Health Organization realized that the different reagents throughout the world had different sensitivities or the responsiveness of warfarinized plasma was different with the different reagents mm -hmm. and they had developed a standard okay and they called it the international normalized ratio the INR INR so that we use and take for granted every day That's right. <laughs> and 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 they didn't have a lot of control but they suggested that that if laboratories wanted to get a sample of their standard they could standardize their, mm -hmm. their prothrombotime ratio reporting as an INR. And there was a little simple formula that you could use. Yeah. But you needed to know what the responsiveness of the thromboplastin was. And that was the international and that was called the ISI, the International Sensitive Index. The vendors uh, in North America really resisted this because mm -hmm. they would have to go to the trouble of doing an international an ISI on their yeah. reagents and check each, each not each batch, but each new batch. Yeah. And they didn't want to do that. Yeah. They also 
and they and and the uh, shakers and movers in the United States, particularly, uh, with this American College of Pathology, American College of Clinical Pathology, American Society of Hematology, they uh, many of the the experts were consulting for these companies. Yeah, so they so had that, influence and power. They had influence. Right? They, had, they they were biased and they had influence, and so they didn't accept it either. Mm. Now, fortunately, this is the luck of the draw. At about, in about 19, this is now 1985, so mm -hmm. we're now moved 10 years. Okay. Uh, I was invited to, to co-chair a, uh, it turned out to be a guideline recommendations by the National Institutes of Health okay. and the American College of Chest Physicians, mm -hmm. which was published in chest. Mm -hmm. And I had very little, there were experts from neurologists, hematologists, cardiologists, surgeons, physicians. In fact, the, the, the panel was about 60 people. Okay. Uh, quite a few from McMaster that mm -hmm. I brought, but most of them from the United States. And it didn't take me long to convince them about two things. One is the need to, uh, for lower intensity and the need to use an INR. Mm. And once they were really convinced, because we did a simple little experiment, we took uh, plasma from the same person mm -hmm. and we measured their prothrombotime ratio mm -hmm. using seven different reagents. There you go. And the, the range of prothrombotime ratio was from 1.3 yeah. to about 5.5. Okay. When they saw that. Yeah, it was, uh, was nail in the coffin, right? <laughs> so, and, and, and DuPont was the manufacturer of, a main manufacturer of Warfarin. And they had a, a large, large educational budget. They were very good. Mm -hmm. So they then sponsored various meetings of the American College of Chess Physicians, which, pub, which was published in the journal Chess. And c cutting a long story short, over a period of about five years, 70% of the laboratories in the United States and probably all of the laboratories in Canada, this sort of ripple effect, mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I would get calls from London, Ontario, and Toronto saying, hey, you know, are we doing the wrong thing? And I'd say, I think you are doing the wrong thing. And that visit. So Ontario was probably the first place that, mm -hmm. in Canada, in mm -hmm. North America, that standardized their, their monitoring and used the INR and using a, 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 a therapeutic range of two to three. Mm -hmm. uh, and within about, I'd say, 10 years, it became standard practice. Mm -hmm. Hospitals began to uh, have a stamp which said the therapeutic range is an INR of, of mm -hmm. two to three mm -hmm. for venous thrombosis, polyembolism, and three to four for prosthetic heart valves. And that go. became standard. Yeah. That became standard. And uh, actually, the way we started doing it at McMaster Hospital, because mm -hmm. I was head of hematology at McMaster Hospital that time, mm -hmm. is we just bit the bullet. We said, what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. is we're going to report for three months, we're going to report the prothrombotime ratio as a ratio mm -hmm. and as an INR. Both. Both. Yeah. And then we're going to drop the prothrombotime ratio. Yeah. Once Those days we didn't have to go to any committees at all. We just did it. Mm -hmm. And we got a lot of calls when we dropped, what you, what's this INR? You know, right. But after about a year, everyone accepted it. And, yeah. Uh, that's the quick way of doing things. Right? There you yeah. go. There you go. All right. Going through multiple committees. And fair, stuff. fair. So, so 
I'm going to reflect a little bit because I think there's so many lessons learned, but I'm going to bring you back to a couple of the moments. That was a lovely story about, you know, how you ultimately in, ended up um, really making a huge practice change, uh, mm. both locally and then nas- provincially, nationally, and internationally. Could I just say yeah. one other Oh, yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. One other thing that was the, 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 probably the biggest, biggest impact it had mm-hmm. was in atrial fibrillation. Okay, yes. Okay. So at that time... The Freeman study had been published quite a number of years earlier, and it was known that roughly 5% of people per year with atrial fibrillation developed a stroke. Mm-hmm. And every time anyone tried to start a study with warfarin, they <laughs> stopped it because of bleeding, mm-hmm. cerebral bleeding. Yeah. And so a neurologist, uh, Bob Hart, mm-hmm. who then was recruited to McMaster, Mm-hmm. Later on, later in his career, decided to do the first study in atrial fibrillation. It was called SPAF, mm-hmm. SPAF one, very very famous study, mm-hmm. and it was a multi-centre study. It was mm-hmm. very straightforward: warfarin versus placebo in mm-hmm. atrial fibrillation. Outcome measure was systemic embolism, which is mainly made up of stroke. And he attended one of my lectures, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what stimulate him to do it but when mm-hmm. he went back to the cardiologists they were so used to using this higher range they mm-hmm. said no no we want to use we want to use. at that stage i and i hadn't been except we mm-hmm. but we want to use a uh, a range of which would be equivalent to three to four point five Okay, so much more with what they would do for valves. They were valves. familiar with that, so right, they right. And that's what to... they were familiar with, and that's what they decided. Mm-hmm. But of course, they there was no standardisation. Mm-hmm. Would have been so he stuck to his guns, mm-hmm. and the study was a huge success. Sixty six percent reduction in stroke, uh, acceptable bleeding, and mm-hmm. so forth. He wrote to me, and I, I've kept this letter. I don't, I'm not sure I can find it. He said, he said. Just as well as I attended your lecture, and just as well as that I was able to convince the cardiologist or stuck to my guns, because if I hadn't and would use this higher prothrombin time ratio, they use a ratio of 1.3 to 1.5 in that study mm-hmm. with that thromboplastin, because mm-hmm. we'd, we, we were able to, um, uh, to normalize it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because at that stage, we, we did have a human thromboplastin standard. Okay. But they wanted to use their thromboplastin. So I said, the range is 1.3 to 1.5. Mm-hmm. The cardiologists were very upset, but it was very successful. That was equivalent to an INR of 2 to 3. Mm. Uh, and he said, just as well we did this, because if we hadn't, we'd have got the usual bleeding, the study would have been stopped, it would have set back the use of warfarin atrial fibrillation for years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now. Soon after, over the next decade, there were five other studies all mm-hmm. reporting the same results. Oh, no. And, and I mean, I think that you, you're such a great storyteller. I, I could uh, sit and listen for a long time. What, what I'd like to do, though, is, is, is take you back to a couple of moments that I wanted to pick up on mm-hmm. to, to really, you know, like, how did you know that some of your collaborators would be great collaborators? Like, you, 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 you reflected on how you're like, ah. Oh, you knew the moment that Dave Sackett asked you that question that that's the kind of person I need. How did, how did you know that? How did you pick out someone that you knew that to you needed for your team? Or, uh, how did I pick out Sackett and Jed? 
Yeah, how did you end up, like, well, you know, how do you assemble that team, right? What, what about them or uh, well, the report? Okay. Mm-hmm. At the time that, when I, was, when I was doing clinical research in Australia, I was doing it blindly. We had no understanding of clinical epidemiology. We had no understanding of methodology. Mm-hmm. We knew that you should do randomised trials. We did a randomised trial in Australia where we used an envelope which said A or B. Mm. And uh, the residents liked A better and they could sort of see through it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So there are all sorts of cheating that can go on with okay. randomised trials. Yeah. And, and at the time I met Dave Sackett, he was uh, about the same age as me. Uh, he was about 34 mm-hmm. and he was the youngest, he was made chairman of the Department of Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics, having just come out of a fellowship. Wow. He hadn't even had a faculty. Uh, wow. John Evans, the, uh, the founding chair, um, dean yeah. and vice president, he was a terrific guy mm-hmm. and he, could, he knew that what was required was methodology. Mm. So he... The Department of Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics was a large department Mm -hmm. and they really served to help others, as it were, to to educate them and teach them the religion, Mm. the true religion, (laughs) which is evidence-based medicine. Yeah. And so we started practicing evidence-based medicine Mm -hmm. uh, under the tutelage of of Dave Sack. Well, I realised I was lacking something in Australia. I realised what I was lacking was a knowledge of biostatistics and epidemiology. Mm, okay. And he and 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 actually, Dave Sackett learned his epidemiology and biostatistics from Feinstein, Elvin Feinstein. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading Elvin Feinstein's. There were three papers written in a journal that no longer exists. It was called the Journal of Chronic Diseases. It had everything. It basically went through the, you know, the, the whole idea of uh, case control studies, cohort studies, randomised studies, bias, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, so. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Dave built on that. Mm. But Dave was not a statistician. Mm. And sometimes you need a good statistician. And mm. Mike Gent, starting off as a pure mathematician, was an excellent statistician. So the three of us, it was uh, as if we were each CEO of a different company, but we ran our own company, but we collaborated. Yeah. And we, we respected each other. Yeah. And so it was easy to pick out these collaborators. Now, to expand your question, sometimes you don't, but it, it doesn't take long to realise whether someone is serious about collaborating in research and not. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are those telltale signs? Uh, one of the telltale signs is if they say they're going to do something, say if you assign tasks to people, which often yeah. you do when you start some sure. sort of research relationship, yeah. you say, okay, will you do that reading and summarise that? And yeah. I'll summarise that. Yeah. Well, the people who do it, when they say they're going to do it, uh, that's what, that's not everything, but that's one very, very important. So showing up and yeah. doing your part. Doing your part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are people who always have excuses. Always, there are people who will be extremely enthusiastic. Oh, yes, yes, but they don't deliver. Mm-hmm. So you look for someone who delivers mm-hmm. on their promises, depending on 
what you want in the collaboration. Sometimes you want someone with similar interests to your own, but mm. often you want someone who complements your interests. Yeah. That knows something different from you. Knows something different. Because then you can be stronger together. Whereas if you're exactly the same, then you can substitute for each other, right? right. It's like having two pitchers on a team. Sometimes you need a pitcher and a catcher and right. a backstop, right? Right, right. So there's a tr tremendous strength if you've got someone who has expertise. If the expertise is important for the study, mm -hmm. you're much better off working with someone who's an expert than working with a fellow and asking them to develop expertise. Uh, fellows are there for training. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, I've learned an enormous amount from fellows. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, I think the trainees and fellows often will have a different I'm a lens. Trainee, uh, yeah. right? and, and, and they again, come in with new uh, eyes. Mm -hmm. I've probably trained well over 150 people, mm -hmm. and of those, there's five or six that have been really, really outstanding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, flash forward to, you know, like, now, if you were to advise someone, you know, early in their career, mm -hmm. someone who is just finishing their fellowship or just mm -hmm. establishing sort of themselves, um, how do you think they can conduct themselves to make sure that they're, you know, like it sounds like, you know, you've, you've hinted that maybe showing up and doing your part, that's important, mm -hmm. finding people that compliment you. Are there any other things that like, you know, like it, the story that you told at the beginning of this was really about resilience mm -hmm. in the face of adversity, right? Mm -hmm. Like you go to one shop and they say, nope, not for us. Mm -hmm. You don't stop there. You mm -hmm. go on to the next. Mm -hmm. What are some tips that you have um, beyond just those three things that you think might be helpful for a junior scientist that's looking to carve out a career? Okay. So if some, and I've had people come to me and ask me that question. Mm -hmm. So the answer is, First thing is make sure that you get well trained. Okay. And if you're going to be well trained, mm -hmm. try to train with someone who's really good, mm -hmm. because that rubs off, and you and you learn to to recognise what's required. Mm -hmm. uh, I can remember in my first fellowship in St Louis, which was just wonderful at, at Washington University, mm -hmm. saying to uh, my supervisor, who I got to know, you people work so hard, you work all the time. And he was an Englishman, Chuck uh -huh. Tony Fletcher. And uh, because I was used to professors who, uh, you know, uh, in Melbourne who would work, but they'd go home and they'd do the garden and, and do other things, and which is fine, sail their yachts or whatever. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not denigrating this approach, but these guys just didn't, they just worked all the time. And they loved their work. Yeah. They loved their work. Uh -huh. uh, actually, he gave a very interesting answer. He said, look, if I wasn't doing this, I'd probably be chasing women. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, all right. uh, uh, I mean, yeah. that's what he said, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, work with someone who really, really is dedicated and good. So about two, th and, and, and don't skimp on it. A lot of people do one year of fellowship and they, they feel they've, they've learned everything. Okay. Uh, the fellowship years were the best learning years of my life because okay. you had no other responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You wanted to, you could spend five hours in the library without anyone beeping you or anything because mm -hmm. you had no other responsibilities. And then once you're through, and this is really important, I think, is 
If you're going to ask a question, make sure it's a really important question. Because you're probably going to spend as much time trying to answer a trivial question as an important question. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you learn whether, how do you know whether a question is an important question? Well, it's very difficult, if it's clinical research, mm-hmm. to know whether the question is really an important question unless you've got clinical experience. Mm-hmm. You've got to see the patients mm-hmm. and, and realise that there are things you're doing off the cuff because there's no good data to guide you. Mm. So you provide that, the data. So you're looking you. for those gaps, right? The gaps in when you're encountering something in the day-to-day work right. that is a burning question that just keeps nagging at you because you have to, uh, I guess, make it up. You have to MacGyver it, right? <laughs> well, I mean, if you just take that warfarin thing, yeah. we, went, we had patients with venous thrombosis. We treated with heparin. We weren't sure what to... What do you do after? What yeah. do you do after? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, now we know. <laughs> because you helped us right. figure it out. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, and design the study properly. Yeah, yeah. You know, design mm-hmm. well, that's, I think at the time that I started, it, it was, you know, it was it was still a learning experience. Now it's it's uh, boilerplate. We know how to do a proper study. Now people come to me, and uh, because because one stage in my career I was VP research of Hamilton Health Sciences, and I decided at that stage that 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 I'd have hold a informal meeting once a week with with any with non-medical non-md mm-hmm. employees of the hospital and they had some terrific ideas mm. mm-hmm. uh, physiotherapists and they had lots of questions mm. uh, and and we'd, we'd have a, we'd have a you know really good time and, mm-hmm. and one of the and, and and some of them would have done a part of the whatever the course is, the epidemiology course in design, mm-hmm. measurement, evaluation. And the question, and that often come and they'd say, we want to do this, this and this, how many patients do we need? Mm-hmm. Say, no, no, stop, stop. So what, 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 I'm not going to answer that question. What's your question? What question are you trying yes. to answer? Yeah. And why are you trying to answer the question? Yeah. Okay. And I then say to them, how many patients can you get? Because the, once you decide the question is reasonable, mm-hmm. the next question you have to ask yourself, is it feasible? Exactly. And it won't be feasible if you can't get enough people. Exactly. Or you have to think about how you grow your friend network so you can have other sites and other opportunities. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But then Mm -hmm. you can't start thinking about other sites until you know, and usually, well, uh, more so now than before, but before there was so little data that you just have to guess what the event rates were likely to be mm-hmm. in untreated. You just have to guess what the event rates would likely to be with your favourite treatment. And, and I learned this from Mike Chet, actually. He, he would say, look, tell me how many you can get. Give me some idea of the event rate. Yeah. What do you think this will really yeah. what the reduction? So, so after you decide that the question is worthwhile, yeah. the next thing you have to decide is whether the study is feasible. Yeah, so you do that first feasibility pilot study and yeah. you, you try to figure some of that out, right? All right, the way. right. Mm-hmm. Now, you, yes, if there's not enough data in the literature. Mm-hmm. Now, there, sometimes there's enough in the literature to, be, to give you a, a pretty good idea what event rates are going to be in the various groups. Mm-hmm. 
And the other thing is, I think, uh, we tend to overestimate the benefits of treatment. Mm. Uh, so I, I've learned a lot from Salim Yusuf too. Salim's approach is get as many as you can. The more the merrier. Mm -hmm. Because, because so, many, so often people are being burnt with uh, a p-value of 0.07. Uh, now, yeah, what's the difference between a p-value of 0.07 and a p-value of 0.04? Well, sometimes it's just the sample size. Mm. But the difference it makes in whether the patient paper's accepted, whether the treatment's accepted, is mm. enormous. So sample size. Yeah, mm. and things have, this has all been professionalized now. It wasn't yeah. before. Mm. So you've got groups now. Mm -hmm. Probably there, there might be 10 groups in the world in any specialty that the pharmaceutical companies will go to and say, would you do a study for us? Yeah. Because they have the they've developed the collaborators yeah. and, and, the, and it's a tough job yeah. uh, to do that. Uh, I was much happier just doing, it, doing studies in Canada because once you start doing multi-set of studies like that, multi you're on the aeroplane, you're on an aeroplane to China, you're on an mm -hmm. aeroplane to Brazil, and, mm -hmm. uh, Bangkok. And you know, first time it may sound romantic, but the 10th time is it's, it's, it's a grind. Mm -hmm. So being uh, someone who runs these large multi-center trials, you need a huge amount of stamina. Yeah, and, and you need the infrastructure, yeah. right? Because, you and, yeah. And, yeah, you need infrastructure. And, yeah. and, so, and there aren't a lot of places in the world with that infrastructure. Yeah, and I think we're, we're quite lucky here to have some of those role models we're, and groups. We're very lucky, but, but, yeah. but, you, but you, there, are, there are still questions that you're going to answer without necessarily going to 10 different countries. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And, mm -hmm. and if you can do it that way, I would recommend you do it that way. <laughs> yes, keep and, it simple, and, right? <laughs> keep, it sim keep it as simple as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's elegance and simplicity and, yeah. and, and you can win an argument. Like, like you said, um, the, the, to cycle back to one of your stories, you know, take the one sample and use seven reagents, right? Like that's a simple, simple. game-changing, convincing, right. evidentiary argument. And, right. and, and, and I think that that's at the core of it, some really great advice, right? Like don't be overly complicated, but be willing to lean into some of those complications if you need to, but really lean into those really important questions. Really keep it simple after that and do what you can because a feasible study and a finished study is probably better than no study at all because it, it was uh, mired by too much um, either drama, travel, or logistical issues. And so keeping it simple allows you to do that. So I, I think another important lesson I try to get this across to the mm -hmm. fellows that I learned is if someone believes differently than you mm -hmm. do or their data is different than yours, don't assume that you're right and they're wrong. Rather than do that, ask why is there a difference? Mm -hmm. And that was the issue with Polar. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Polar's approach was you're wrong, uh, that's it. Fortunately, my approach was there has to be an answer to this. Yeah, the curiosity because factor. Because it's not a question of right, right or wrong. Mm -hmm. It's a question of the facts. The facts were the facts. Mm. And there were these differences. Mm -hmm. Let's try to work out why there were these differences. Yeah, yeah. And, and so often what will happen is I find that if, we've, if our group has published something and a fellow is the first author, and someone else publishes on a similar topic but gets mm -hmm. a different result, 
the initial reaction is they're wrong. It's the wrong reaction. The question you should ask is why, why is their results different than our results? Mm-hmm. Yeah, often, get to the underlying cause so that right. you can answer the right question. And the other thing that I've learned is we come up with a hypothesis because research is hypothesis testing. We come up with a hypothesis and sometimes it's completely wrong. That often leads to a more important result than if you're right. That's interesting, right? Because the unexpected challenge. An unexpected result. Mm -hmm. You say, well, why did we get that result? Well, the reason we got the result is our, our perception of what causes the illness was wrong. And, and you go right back to the, to the sort of pathophysiology of the illness. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for all those insights. Uh, My pleasure. I think a big part of how we need to move forward is, is sometimes to look backwards at the things that we've learned. And so I'm really glad that you've had the chance to share some of your wisdom with me and to everyone else. And we'll have to bring you back another time for another episode. Thank you. I'd be glad to do that. Thank you for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Office for Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development at McMaster University's Faculty of Health Sciences. For more information on faculty development, be sure to check out our website at macpfd.ca. That's macpfd.ca. Here you can find other episodes as well as resources for your personal and professional development. A quick shout out to our sound engineer, Ishan Mania Panda, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Another shout out to Scott Holmes, who composed and supplied us with the music you've been listening to. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it, and be sure to tune in for our future episodes.